Welcome everyone. My name is Stacey Rubin and I am with Conservation Law Foundation. I am the co-chair of the Energy Committee along with Joe Dorfler from the Attorney General's Office. And we are pleased to welcome all of you to the event and have three expert speakers who will talk about the electric grid, which was designed for power to flow from power plants to buildings. And as our Commonwealth is making progress toward integrating more renewable technologies and working toward our greenhouse gas emissions reduction goals, our utilities, regulators, developers, and other customers are faced with challenges in reliable and timely interconnections. So today we will hear from Shauna Thompson from Blue Wave Solar, Deganto Chatterjee from Eversource Energy, and Kate Tomei from the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities. And as you heard from our uh, BBA representative today, we are asking everyone to use the Q&A function in order to submit written questions. So I will start by introducing our speakers in reverse order that they are speaking in. Uh, we will hear from Kate Tomei, who is a hearing officer and ombudsperson designee at the Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities. In her position, she manages docket programs and projects related to clean energy, climate change, and distributed generation, including mediating disputes between electric distribution companies and customers related to distributed generation interconnection. Kate is also the hearing officer for the department's investigation into the current standards and procedures by which distributed generation projects are interconnected to the electric power system in Massachusetts. And I'll now turn it over to Joe to introduce our other two panelists. Thank you. We also have Deganto Chatterjee. He is the vice president system planning at Eversource. In this role, he is responsible for transmission and distribution planning across Eversource's three state footprints New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. Previously, Mr. Chatterjee served as Vice President of Investment Strategy at GE Capital, where he led fundamental energy and capacity market analysis to inform investment decisions in over two gigawatts of renewable, of renewable energy throughout the United States. Mr. Chatterjee began his professional career about two decades ago at GE Energy Consulting, performing engineer, engineering studies for utilities both within and outside the United States. Mr. Chatterjee subsequently worked for MISO, where he led reliability and economic transitioning planning, as well as resource adequacy. At MISO, Mr. Chatterjee successfully led implementation of FERC orders 890 and 1000, as well as technical studies in support of zonal capacity market construct. Mr. Chatterjee led the reliability justification of MISO's multi-value projects planned and constructed to enable about 21 gigawatts of onshore wind across the Midwest. Mr. Chatterjee earned his bachelor's in power electronics engineering from Nagpur University in India. He earned his master's in electrical power engineering from Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute in New York and an MBA from the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He is a member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. Finally, we have Shauna Thompson. She is the director of interconnection at Blue Wave Solar and has worked in the solar industry across both California and New England for close to a decade. She began her career researching smart grid pilot cases across the US, assessing the viability of community choice aggregation projects in California, and studying the impact of both roof, rooftop and utility scale solar on biodiversity across the Southwest. She has led the expansion and daily operation 
of marketing and sales teams for rooftop solar across both the San Francisco Bay Area and New England. And over the last three years has focused her efforts on developing distribution scale projects in Massachusetts. In her current role as director, Shauna acts as the Blue Wave representative to utility counterparts in major New England territories and works daily with the Blue Wave interconnection team to navigate challenges in solar design, interconnection costs, and timetables, integration of new technologies, and implementation of state incentive programs. And with that, thank you for all for joining, and I want to turn it over to Shauna. Hi, everybody. I'm sorry you guys can't see me. I am having some technical difficulties in my video, um, but I will jump right in here. Um, so I'm the director of interconnection for Blue Wave Solar. I'm going to talk a little bit about the challenges and opportunities experienced by developers in the solar industry in Massachusetts currently. So to jump right in, I know we don't have a lot of time, there's lots to cover. So, so currently Massachusetts renewables in 2020. So Massachusetts is calling for 100% of energy to be generated um, by, let's see the year, by uh, 2045 in order to just address climate change. Massachusetts, along with many other New England states and also California, has quickly become the leader in clean energy over the last 10 years. So I would say that all eyes are currently on us to lead the charge for transitioning to the clean energy economy. Solar in Massachusetts is a key, key part of the renewable energy mix. Um, the goal last year was to get to 1600 megawatts. That was surpassed by hitting 2,776 megawatts. The industry created 10,400 jobs. And at this point, solar covers rooftops, landfills, green spaces, um, solar, solar canopies. Um, it is also being created at, in dual use projects on active farms that are now producing both crops and energy and also sites are being set aside for pollinator friendly vegetation. So as um, Stacy alluded to, the challenges currently are, I would say the success of the solar industry in Massachusetts have created a bit of a bottleneck um, when it comes to the technical capacity of the grid since it was designed to be centralized with you know, a central power generator sending out energy at high voltage over long distances reaching substations that then stepped down the voltage and went through feeder lines to end up in you know at a very much less voltage to um, residences and businesses at the end of the feeders. Now we have solar coming on all over the grid from all different areas at all sizes in a kind of a reverse power flow um, situation that, that the, the grid simply just wasn't designed for. So I would say that state agencies, developers, and utilities are all kind of racing to find solutions to how to quickly upgrade the grid in order to bring more solar on and reach these renewable energy goals. Um, and so that's been a huge undertaking. And I think that that is what we are in the midst of doing as we speak. Uh, can you go to the next slide, Stacey, please? So, so some of the challenges that we have historically faced have to do with project delays in queue management um, between developers and utilities. So the first major thing I would say that has been an issue has been like every 
so every utility has an interconnection tariff that was a DPU order that is a document that pretty much regulates the cost structure and scope and, and um, it, like infrastructure timeline between utilities and, and the developers. And most of the time utilities are able to meet their, the timeline set forth for them in the, I would say in the, in the tariff um, pretty consistently, but sometimes due to large volume of solar coming on and I think just a lack of staffing in specific DG related departments, they've blown past those, those timelines. For instance, you know, there's been, in, there's been requests for pre-application reports, which help developers determine where it would be viable for a project to come online. We request those from the utility. They're supposed to return them in 10 business days. There's been instances where we haven't received them for four months. And that really leaves developers kind of reaching blindly for where the best places in the, in, in, on the, you know, in the grid to basically bring projects online, which can add to the oversaturation in certain areas currently. Um, and so I think each place I have here is a solution. The solution for this is just, I think, improving automated processes and communication consistent across all utilities. Some utilities have developed online portals where all the information is posted. It really cuts down on the back and forth emails between the developer and the utility. And I think that if all utilities implemented this across the board, it would help move projects along in the queue much more quickly. Another request that we have is parallel studies. We have cur currently there are some utilities that study projects sequentially, one at a time. These studies, the impacts of the grid of the study, um, can take up to six months to complete. And after the study is complete, costs of the potential upgrades come back to the developer, and the developer has a decision to make whether they want to move forward. If the costs are too high, they can drop out. There's been instances when one developer after the other drops out to the point that, for example, we have a project that's very small, only one megawatt, but because of multiple developers in front of us dropping out after their six-month study, um, it's triggered, we're left with now, $7.7 .7 million in upgrades. So I think we feel a much more efficient way to approach this would be parallel studies where a snapshot of is taken of a, a, a time where all of the developers, you know, have proposed projects on a specific feeder, what the upgrades at that time need to be, and how to fairly split the costs amongst everyone who wants to come online so they can all move forward with their projects at once and again help for a speedy clearing out of the queue. Um, and as I alluded to, there the third issue has been a lack of cost sharing mechanisms. Now, why developers have tried to do this independently and encouraged by utilities to contact each other um, and try to work together to share costs. It's been very difficult because not each developer does not have access to the big picture and all of the resources um, are very different among developers. And so we are asking that instead the DPU regulate this process and create something that is clear, consistent, and transparent and that the utilities administer it. We feel this would be much more effective. And then the fourth issue is a lack of guidelines around new technologies. Um, the SMART program, which came 
unless you're really incentivized storage. And at the same time, the utilities didn't have a clear mechanism to integrate this into existing projects. So this translated to the development community actually incurring a significant loss in storage incentives. As we waited for the utilities to figure out how they wanted to incorporate storage, we watched the incentive um, basically drop as each storage tranche fill up one after the other. And, you know, so we're just asking that in the future utilities work to shorten the utility learning curve for new technology integration. Maybe this is by focusing early on on R&D and pilot projects or something that would just help lessen the gap between um, incentive dollars lost and, and, you know, the learning curve of new technology integration for utilities. Can you please move to the next slide? Thank you. And the third, I'd say, major issue is ASO studies. Now, ASO studies are effective system operators where this basically means one project or multiple projects has come being proposed um, in one location of high saturation has the uh, ability to trigger transmission level upgrades. So the, the utilities essentially have needed to halt all the projects in order to study whether this is going to actually impact transmission level or not, which that's understandable. But the problem for developers is that these studies can take up to nine months and they have potential of large scale, trans, large scale transmission line upgrades with associated cost of millions of dollars. And so this adds uncertainty and risk to selling of these assets. Um, an example is the first ASO cluster study in Massachusetts in 2019 um, forced key pro like large scale key projects to remain idle while the study progressed. A lot of these were um, very close to being operational, ready to go, ready to be sold. And instead they were delayed by eight months. A lot of those are still, developers are still carrying the financing costs for these projects and are still working on selling them because at the time develop, or buyers don't wanna buy a project that is gonna sit there idle for eight months and then has the potential of added millions of dollars of transmission study costs as well. So this really has had a, a huge implication on future investments for companies in their pipeline. The money they would have made from selling these projects last year is now on hold basically. And so they're not able to fully invest as much as they would in projects in 2020. And it also has implications toward the operational costs and just the future viability of a company. And so it's, it's become a, a huge issue for um, developers. And the DPU, had an interim order that asked for frequent communication regarding scenarios and updates with the studies. Um, and I would say this has greatly helped. The utilities have made a big effort in trying to communicate timelines and scope every month and also holding a lot of interconnection seminars and um, an ASO study meetings to update developers on the latest um, efforts but I think we're asking for even more frequent communication and, and just the, the need for utilities to be very proactive in, in um, letting us know when ASO studies are going to be 
um, incurred in a certain area, just because we still feel it's a very short timeline from when we're notified of an ASO study from when we have to pay the ASO study fees and we have to submit documentation that we have to get from third parties. So there's still, I think, a, a little more communication that can make this easier on everyone and allow the development community to better plan for the ASO study impacts. Um, a second related issue has been the mapping of transmission line congestion. I think developers do need to know in real time areas of high saturation in order to avoid potential transmission line upgrades. And I think we're asking for, you know, increased communication here as well and just to notify the development community of transmission lines that have been flagged or are close to being flagged for upgrades. And then we're also asking for transmission level cost sharing because where these upgrades are incurred, um, it's not clear to us, there's, there's no historical range. So it's not clear to us how much they're going to be um, we believe they'll be based per megawatt, but we're not clear if location matters. So we're just asking for a more transparent and efficient cost sharing mechanism if transmission level upgrades are incurred. Can we go to the next slide, please? And last is um, the COVID-19 challenges that I think we're all having at the moment. So most utilities have called for a force majeure. So because of this, there's a significant um, potential for delays to construction, financing, operations, um, and delays in receiving the income tax credit. So the um, solar industry, we're continuing to move forward trying to attract investment and trying to avoid large amounts of layoffs as experienced by other industries. I think the utilities have been doing an awesome job and going forward and keeping their work from being interrupted by this. And we just ask that they continue to do that. There's some things that are still like the tax credit. It's going to be a tax credit. It's a tax credit that is given on capital costs for projects, but the project has to be completed in that year. So if our projects, for instance, aren't completed um, in this year and we're applying for this tax credit, we don't get the current, it's like 30, 6% um, of our capital costs and our taxes for the capital costs returned. Um, and so that can be very significant and kind of a, a deal breaker for projects, whether they are viable or not. And the second issue with COVID-19 has been uncertain SMART SOQ dates because there's a shelter in place and we're not sure when it's going to end. It's not clear how long projects will be delayed in reaching their operational or mechanical completion is the technical term, um, their ability to become operational because there may be issues with labor or equipment delivery from other countries who are in similar situations. So we ask that in order to mitigate those risks for a blanket extension at the state level of at least six months to be able to reach incentive, you know, our incentive timelines um, specifically for SMART SOQ. Due dates, these projects are otherwise viable and um, being constructed and are ready to become operational. So we would hate to miss the timeline due to a delay from COVID-19 and have this project essentially turn into a pumpkin. Um, and the last issue is payment schedule solutions. Currently, all the, the projects that are still moving forward, 
I think it's reasonable to ask for any payments incurred by this project for ASO studies or ISA payments. But if any project does get put on hold, I think it's important and fair that similarly the payments are frozen as well so the project's able to move forward again. And that's similar to what is currently instituted for the ASO studies. So we're just asking for flexibility in payment schedules during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, with that, I am done and I will hand it over to Diganto. Great, and Shauna, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And Diganto, if you're ready to share your screen, that would be helpful. And as a reminder, questions um, can be input into the Q&A. If you look at the bottom of your screen, uh, feel free to type a question. And we'll leave time for Q&A after the three presentations. So Diganto, take it away. So um, yeah, hi, good afternoon. Uh, just trying to get rid of uh, some of the video on the on the right hand side. But um, so um, my name is Diganto Chatterjee. I'm in charge of T and D system planning across every source across our three states. We of course serve about four million customers across the three states. Um, and a lot of the the points that Shauna brought up uh, are understandable, right? The industry has been evolving for some time and the utilities have to respond to new technologies and new study processes that we haven't had to initially, you know, traditionally sort of think about. Um, in California, uh, even though they've seen a rapid rise of DERs, what may not be um, well uh, understood across the country is that in, in California, majority of the DER growth has happened on rooftops of houses. Um, and that's, that's the term that they use for DERs. Uh, and so the impacts on the distribution system have been, have been there some, but minimal relative to New England. Uh, in New England, what is particularly interesting is that majority of this DER is coming in on our 13.2 kV system. This system was built to just serve local townships, like the township of Fremont or township of uh, local towns in, along the Cape. Uh, we have typically, uh, if you think of like each town, we have one or two substations and a bunch of cables that serve communities and homes in that neighborhood. Uh, so when you have a lot of DERs, uh, that are trying to interconnect on that system, um, you really, really kind of stress the distribution system. But at least sort of looking out 10, 15 years, uh, we would be in a very, very different place than we are today, right? We have offshore wind coming in in uh, Cape area and along the coasts near Brayton Point, near uh, all of the sort of the traditional nuclear power plant locations. We certainly expect that to that trend to continue. Take advantage of those uh, interconnection sites that have been traditionally held by fossil fuel generation. Uh, but then uh, we're also seeing sort of the retirement of traditional power plants, right? So if, if all of this DER comes in and participates in wholesale capacity and energy markets, you would, ex you would assume that DERs that have very low marginal cost uh, would, would be reflected in wholesale prices. And as those wholesale prices 
come down, it puts pressure on retirement of fossil fuel generation, just as economics 101, uh, not really particularly driven by any uh, emissions policies, which New England also has. Uh, New England states participate in REGI, which is uh, basically a carbon trading emissions uh, scheme. Uh, and then, uh, you know, on, on the distribution side, uh, which I'll spend the bulk of my time talking about, you know, there's, there's significant innovation going on right now on distribution, not just on the system, but how we analyze the system is rapidly changing. Um, we, we, of course, anticipate um, electric vehicles to uh, ramp up as well. Uh, we expect smart thermostats to ramp up. Um, energy storage, as, as we all heard about, um, would also ramp up. Uh, so at, at the rate we are seeing at this point, we certainly expect, just in our queue, about 3,000 megawatts on Eversource system of DERs. And, and we believe that's a good thing. Uh, what, what needs to happen to make that, um, to enable that, are a whole bunch of challenges that Shauna just brought up uh, that we're tackling as we speak. Uh, as far as ISO New England uh, is concerned, um, we, certainly, we certainly see over 6,000 megawatts in their latest 2020 self forecast. Uh, New England wide, we expect significant uh, ramp up, uh, mainly driven by Massachusetts uh, taking a leadership in this uh, in this space. So some of the changes at a very high level, what we're taking uh, on on our system are publishing these uh, hosting capacity maps. So these are maps basically that uh, uh, tell sort of a novice viewer that can go on our website, uh, kind of see where uh, you've received saturation already, you've already arrived with those saturated amounts on the distribution network. Uh, but that doesn't really help you from the reverse power flow standpoint. That is really driven by uh, understanding how much reverse power flow are you seeing from the distribution system up into the transmission system and being able to then assess those transmission impacts. So to, to Shauna's point, we, um, we adopted significant innovation here. Uh, we actually bifurcated um, the transmission studies based on the level of saturation that we're seeing on our system. Uh, so we bifurcated between level zero and level three, which is basically anything between five and 20 megawatts uh, up to 20 megawatts reverse power flow onto the transmission system um, based on coordination with ISO New England, we came up with a sort of simplified study methodology to process those really fast. Uh, and we have, uh, we have uh, successfully processed and uh, received approval from ISO New England stakeholders um, for about 165 megawatts of DERs that took us roughly about two to three months to study. Uh, so that's a, that's a really short time span uh, because as designed, it's not a very detailed study because the anticipation of real transmission issues comes really after you hit that 20 megawatt limit, uh, reverse power flow limit. So the level three studies is what we're embarking on now. 
and that's going to take, as Shauna mentioned, about eight to nine months. And the reason it takes that long is because it, the modeling is very involved. What uh, the typical transmission planning engineer is trying to understand is how are these different inverters interacting with each other when you have transmission level faults? Now, bear in mind, these inverters really hadn't been designed to do that, right? They were designed to convert power from PV and, and uh, from DC to AC and, and just push out that power onto the distribution system. Um, but now we're having asking these inverters to do a lot more. Uh, they're non-grid forming and grid forming inverters. And what they really are, um, are it, they are going to be required to respond to transmission faults. So if you have um, changes in sudden changes in frequency on our system or sudden changes in um, voltages on the system, these inverters would be uh, called upon by the grid operators like Eversource to control the voltage on the grid to control frequency on the grid. Uh, so understanding how these uh, inverters interact with each other is extremely important. Uh, but then as, as I mentioned before, uh, we also have offshore wind coming in in the same locations that DER is in. Uh, so understanding how the offshore wind control systems interact with the DER inverter controls is really important, right? In, in London, what ended up happening with the blackout was that an event on the offshore, event on the transmission system tripped offshore and DER sort of cascade tripped uh, following that event. And, you know, if you follow what happened in London, it, it caused a widespread blackout in London, stalling um, all of the metro uh, trains and uh, a significant event, uh, you know, not to not to trivialize that. And we're in a very similar situation uh, with offshore wind connecting on the same grid on the transmission system, retiring fossil fuel generation that we traditionally relied on to maintain frequency and voltage, and then having an increase in DER. So while enabling DERs is absolutely um, something we are pushing hard on, we just have to maintain, uh, keep an eye on, on reliability as we're doing it to make sure that there's no degradation in reliability. So um, in addition to the hosting capacity maps, we have also published what we're calling ASO uh, study statistics. And, and these sort of represent uh, on our website about 2,500 megawatts of DERs that are uh, currently in our queue. Uh, so the yellows uh, and the sort of the greens that you're seeing on the system, the yellow and green bubbles, those have already been processed. Uh, and the reds are where we've reached those level of, that level three level of saturation where we have to do a full-fledged study. As of last Friday, uh, we have received all the models that um, uh, developers needed to submit for us to commence our study. Uh, we are actively working with ICE in New England to um, nail down our scope, uh, and we will be embarking on uh, actual analysis in the next few weeks. Um, and so the long story of, long story short, 
uh, we would be able to process about um, five to 600 megawatts of DERs, at least from the transmission study queue. So then you have sort of the opposite problem, right? The, the, when Shauna mentioned, you know, the ASO studies take a while, uh, I think we can work to make the ASO studies move very fast. Um, the problem then becomes, what do you do on the distribution study? When you, when you have sort of, uh, you know, two horses pulling a cart and one horse can run really fast, how do you make sure that the other horse can also move fast? So the distribution studies that need to be done today are very localized, right? So by design distribution system is very localized. It, it's focused on identifying distribution issues in a small town. Uh, what you're seeing here is almost the entire state of Massachusetts. So coming up with mechanisms to parallel process distribution studies uh, is hard. Uh, and why it makes it really difficult for uh, a system planner like myself is because um, do I want to turn a blind eye to all of the DERs that are at a station? If I, if I, if I do, and if, if I don't look at all of the queue that's sort of downstream of um, maybe three or four interconnection requests, then my solution to address those issues looks very different. It looks uh, like a small solution that is not very overly burdensome, uh, and I can quickly implement that solution. But as soon as I implement that solution, I end up shutting out all of the other DERs that are interconnecting at that same station. So we had to, as system planners, not only look at the DERs that are in the queue today and tomorrow, and you know, uh, even a year from now, but we have to take a look at the uh, DER growth as a system. So part of what has happened in traditionally in transmission systems that have seen significant ramp up in renewables, especially on the transmission system, um, most of the onshore wind development in this country really started sort of about a decade ago. And the ramp up was enabled partially by uh, allowing transmission companies to aggregate system impacts, to look at transmission issues, uh, and then ramp up uh, different levels of DER penetration uh, and do a full-fledged scenario-based planning that tells you uh, how how do I construct my future state of the system modeling a certain amount of DER growth uh, and different levels of DER penetration, but also look at uh, electrification of gas uh, heating, but and also look at um, EV deployment throughout the state of Massachusetts, and then sort of build out those scenarios and uh, let the let the computers uh, rip and tell us what the right solutions are. Uh, for the range of scenarios and then inform which of those do you need to act on now and try to get cost recovery uh, on. We, we do believe that um, in, in, you know, individual uh, looking at the queue one by one sequential view of studies uh, is difficult, not just because it's, you know, quite inefficient, uh, but it also uh, may become cost prohibitive for DER developers uh, because uh, the first line, the first guy in the queue uh, would have to bear the brunt of the cost and the rest uh, may, may ride free. Uh, 
Um, so part of what makes this my job really interesting is because uh, because of all these challenges that we have, uh, we actually have a lot of different things we can do. We can try to be more creative in cost allocation and how we do studies, how we understand battery technologies, how we uh, deploy new tools. We're using tools that can now run 8760-hour uh, simulations, uh, tools that we didn't have at our disposal a few years ago. Um, so a lot of changes, and quite rightly so, um, but I think the timing is right. And uh, uh, given the confluence of DER developers providing input and uh, the department, uh, you know, providing guidance on how to proceed with different aspects, I think we'll be uh, looking back at 2020 uh, in, in good light that we made some good decisions in the past. That's all I had. Thank you so much, Deganto. Um, and we are now going to turn it over to Kate Tomei from the Department of Public Utilities. And uh, Kate, if you can share your slides. And yes, thank you, Cece. Take it away. <clears throat> right. Can you see them all right? Great. Good afternoon, everyone. I'll try to keep this relatively short so that we can get to questions. Um, I'm going to provide just some information <clears throat> on the Department of Public Utilities' role with regards to interconnection of distributed generation in Massachusetts, and then a little bit of what we've been doing in the realm of reviewing the standards and procedures related to DG interconnection. Just a little disclaimer here, these are my views and not those of the department or the department's commission. Um, here's some background. I think everyone on this call most likely understands the general definition of distributed generation. This is the definition that the Department of Public Utilities uses within its orders and in providing its guidance. Um, the interconnection of DG is all of the necessary processes, studies, construction to connect a facility and authorize the facility to operate in parallel with the electric distribution company. So in Massachusetts, you can be quite a few things when you interconnect to the electric distribution system. I'm not gonna get into them, but here's a list. We have been working at the department to provide um, proper and helpful guidance related to the interconnection of DG since 2002, when the first department investigation resulted in a model interconnection tariff the tariff is the contract between the electric distribution customer, the DG applicant, um, and the, the DG applicant, and then the DG customer, and the electric distribution company. In 2002, the interconnection tariff that was approved by the department standardized the interconnection experience across Massachusetts. Then again, in 2011, we opened another investigation, which um, included a working group. We revised the model tariff we established the timeline enforcement mechanism, we established the interconnection ombudsperson, and we established the technical standards review group, all of which I'll get into a little bit later in the presentation. Now in 2019 and ongoing, we opened an investigation, and this in investigation into um, the standards and procedures generally related to DG interconnection. The, we are addressing issues that are stemming from the increased DG saturation in Massachusetts, which is something that both Shauna and Deganto alluded to. And this is a collaborative stakeholder 
process that's ongoing. Here is an image that can show you a little bit of just how much saturation we're seeing in Massachusetts. This is somewhat outdated, but um, it is this or more. So DG Interconnection and the department. As both of my um, fellow panelists have indicated, there is, are very high DG saturation rates in Massachusetts, and it's just increasing and increasing the demand on the electric power system. And also the demand for studies related to distribution and, and transmission infrastructure upgrades. We expect this saturation to continue in response to the Commonwealth's stringent and aggressive energy policy goals and programs. So what is the DPU's role in DG Interconnection? We actually have a number of roles and I would say we're, so we are the regulator. We regulate the electric distribution companies. We are a collaborator and we coordinate with state, regional, federal entities concerning DG Interconnection. Um, we coordinate stakeholders and those state, regional, federal entities and the electric distribution companies. And we're also a mediator, especially with the ombudsperson role, which I will get into um, in just a few slides. We've also been, the DPU interconnection team, working to think outside of the box on DPU um, electric distribution company and stakeholder collaboration, because we know that interconnection in Massachusetts is not just a one-party issue. As we heard from both of my fellow panelists, there's recognition on all sides of existing issues and the desire to resolve those issues collaboratively. The interconnection ombudsperson. So right now I am the ombudsperson designee. The interconnection ombudsperson role was created through department order in 1175, DPU 1175, and it is an alternative dispute resolution process that's contained within the DG interconnection tariff at section nine. While the tariff is quite lengthy, section nine itself is not, and it is fairly clear on exactly what you can find if you're looking for dispute resolution. This dispute resolution process is for case and project specific disputes and not for general policy issues. But if a, a DG customer has a dispute where they believe that an electric distribution company has violated a tariff provision, a rule or a regulation currently in place, then that customer can raise the, must raise the dispute to a vice president or senior management at the electric distribution company, attempt to resolve the dispute for eight days. And if they're unable to, then they can bring that dispute to the ombudsperson at the Department of Public Utilities. Then at the DPU, the ombudsperson and my team, the interconnection team, which includes both technical and legal staff, will work with the two parties to hear all of the facts concerning the dispute and offer a proposed but non-binding resolution. We, we see a lot of resolution through this process, both at the stage where the issue gets raised to the VP or senior manager, and also at the proposed resolution stage. We don't see a lot of these cases that move to section 9.1, but you do have the option, if either party does not agree with the proposed resolution, to move to mediation. And then if you are still unhappy with your resolution through mediation, you can then come back to the D DPU for a full adjudicatory proceeding that would result in a binding directive from the department's commission. Um, alternatively to section nine, 
with DG interconnection issues, the department will always hear questions from DG customers and either answer those questions or direct you to an appropriate entity. We have an online form. The DP will also hear complaints, although we're not going to act on those complaints unless they are submitted properly through the Section 9 dispute resolution process. Um, a customer or an electric distribution company could always petition the DPU. Uh, and if the department hears the same issues from many stakeholders, the DPU could open an investigation on its own motion. And that's what we've seen happen in DPU 1955, which I'm going to get into. Um, another avenue at the department where we play a role is the Massachusetts Technical Standards Review Group. The TSRG was born out of that 2011 DG Working Group, and it's composed of seven members. So it is a technical group that meets, discusses, and proposes resolutions to technical issues related to distributed generation interconnection in Massachusetts. There are three EDC representatives, three non-EDC representatives, and then the ombudsperson is also the ex officio member. The TSCRG holds quarterly meetings and the DPU is an active participant. We also collaborate with the TSRG uh, at the DPU and the TSRG has been a collaborator in DPU 1955 as well. All right, so DPU 1955, which many of you may be familiar with, is a large-scale investigation that the department opened on its own motion to engage stakeholders and investigate modifying the DG interconnection rules and procedures to meet what we've discussed, the increasing saturation demands. We are addressing key issues in 1955 that have been identified by developers, by the EDCs, by the Department of Energy Resources, by the Attorney General's Office, and by other nonprofit and renewable energy organizations. We have a lot of stakeholders participating in this docket. We've had several technical conferences with over 100 attendees, and we have a distribution list with over 300 or 400 interested stakeholders. Um, we've had a lot of procedural background in this docket, so I won't go into all of it, but I do want to just indicate what the department has coordinated in this docket generally and the key topics that we've addressed so far. We announced these topics as initial phase topics in the vote and order. So this docket is not going to necessarily be limited to these topics, but these are the topics that have already had procedure. Um, as part of the 1955 docket, we've had lots of rounds of public comment. We've had at least five technical conferences and we have had um, electric distribution company and stakeholder collaboration outside of the department facilitated events for several of the topics which have, which have resulted in consensus filings for recommended tariff revisions. <clears throat> so some of the key issues that we are addressing in 1955, you're gonna see have some very overlapping themes to what you've heard <laughs> from my colleagues. Um, we have another open docket. So before we dive into 1955, it's DPU 17164 which is investigating group study. This was a petition brought by the electric distribution companies to have a group study be a permanent aspect of the interconnection tariff. It was a pilot program in 2015 to 2016. And um, we've had a lot of procedure and collaboration there. And that would allow for multiple facilities in a common study area to be studied 
at a distribution level at the same time and for costs associated with potentially necessary distribution level costs to be shared amongst that group. The department has not come to a decision in that docket yet, um, but please you know, stay advised. In 1955, we first addressed effective system operator studies. And as um, both of my colleagues recognize, this is a very big issue in the Commonwealth right now. And the department saw it as um, really a twofold issue. One, the ongoing affected system operator studies and how we could assist in making those processes the most efficient and effective as possible. And two, how we could help to make future affected system operator study processes more efficient through potential tariff revisions. Now, there's a limitation of authority here because the department regulates the distribution companies, does not regulate the transmission owners, and it is the transmission owners, and I saw in New England in coordination, that run the effective system operator studies. That being said, we've had quite a bit of procedure here to determine what we could provide in the interconnection tariff or outside the interconnection tariff to assist and provide certainty to distributed generation customers. In addition, um, as Shauna mentioned, we issued interim guidance that provide for, provided for requirements for the EDCs to communicate with customers and the department. The second big topic that we were asked by stakeholders to address, to, uh, management of high volume interconnection queues and the application processing delays associated with those. We had quite a bit of process on that. The department issued a straw proposal and we've received comments on that. Next, we were asked to address energy storage systems. So again, as Shauna, as Shauna mentioned, this is emerging technologies and we are investigating the application standards and metering as well as all other aspects of how energy storage systems can be integrated into the interconnection tariff. This process involved public comment, as well as EDC and stakeholder collaboration. We recently, at the beginning of March, received consensus filing of recommended tariff language from the EDCs and stakeholders, and then um, public comment on those tariff revisions. We are also um, addressing IEEE 1547, which is national standards for interconnection. This is a more technically specific topic, and we've had some um, smaller meetings where we requested only those who have specific technical knowledge to attend, and we've had some very good productive meetings. Now the Technical Standards Review Group is going to be taking up that topic. We are also addressing cost allocation and recovery. The current principle by which the electric distribution companies operate at the department's direction in the Commonwealth is cost causation, meaning that the, the DG applicant or customer that triggers the need for a distribution level upgrade or modification is responsible for those costs. We've heard from stakeholders, as we heard today, that there is interest in um, identifying and implementing an alternative cost allocation principle, whether in all or some situations. So we had a very long comment period where we requested that stakeholders submit proposals and engage with each other as well as experts and consultants. And we received those proposals at the end of February and are currently reviewing them. Um, next and upcoming will be investigation into the timeline enforcement mechanism and general timelines that are contained within the interconnection tariff. 
So we feel that the investigation 1955 has already yielded some very good results, um, stakeholder collaboration being one of them. We also had um, encouraged and received input that the distribution companies have rolled out hosting capacity maps and improved customer notifications. And we've issued three interim guidances, one on effective system operator studies and two on energy storage systems. So we're doing a lot in 1955, but there are a lot of additional challenges that are gonna be coming our way with um, concerning DG interconnection. And that's all related to the increased saturation and the implications that it's gonna have, not just on the distribution system, but on the transmission system as well. So we're going to be dealing with the future large-scale transmission system impact studies. We know that there are issues related to federal versus state jurisdictional boundaries. And of course, the department is always thinking about DG interconnection as part of the big picture Commonwealth energy policy goals. So as I mentioned earlier, with relation to the effective system operator studies, we're doing some aspects of that in DP 1955, but the department is also working in parallel closely with the EDCs, the transmission owners, and ISO New England to ensure that there's current efficient, efficient processing of infrastructure impact studies. Um, as my colleagues mentioned, in March of 2019, there was a large-scale transmission study commenced in central and western Massachusetts, National Grid Service Territory, that um, impacted a group of more than 200 proposed DG interconnections, totaling over 900 megawatts. This was broken into two parts, two phases. Phase one was completed in mid-November, and 320 megawatts were of DG was allowed to interconnect with no additional transmission costs. Part two of the study was completed in March of 2020, and National Grid is still rolling out what costs may be associated with necessary interconnection. There are numerous other transmission studies underway and expected in the Commonwealth, as DeGanto gave some information on. The DPU is also engaging with other New England states so that we can share our experience and lessons learned. Then I have some useful links. Um, and thank you. Uh, Kate, thank you so much. That was great. Um, I'm noticing that we don't have any questions in the Q&A box, but I just wanted to ask what I think is going to be a brief one to our three panelists. So it seems like the stakeholder collaboration that's happening in DPU 1955 overseen by the department is unprecedented and quite successful. Do the panelists expect that this collaboration will continue through resolution of the additional outstanding items in 1955 and other, other issues beyond that docket? At the department, we are very optimistic. We intend to continue with our investigation until we have found the best possible resolution that we can. You know, we're not sure when that end will be in sight and if there will ever be a proper ending time because these issues will continue to arise but we certainly are going to continue to work through those initial phase topics that we identified and we have identified some additional topics which we will likely be noticing um, in the near future probably in may and and from my perspective uh you know this collaboration is helpful because the system as we know it today on the distribution system will completely evolve, right? So if, if uh, we're processing about five to six gigawatts of DERs, 
Uh, and if, if the objective function is to stop after that and no more DERs, distribution systems done, then, then for sure, yeah, well, you know, there's probably no more need for any dialogue. Everyone just goes home, but my guess is that's not going to happen. Uh, so how do you plan for that next phase of that next ramp up of DERs? And frankly, even what the DERs are is going to evolve. Battery storage inverters, our understanding of these inverters is growing as we, as we speak. Literally, the, the DERMS platforms that can assimilate all of this data and enable the grid operators to actively control this, that's changing. So once we figure out interconnection related issues, I think that's, that's probably going to mature. In some of the transmission organizations, they're probably on their round 10 of Q reform, right? Q reforms are very difficult. They are constantly moving. So that part, I don't think will ever really change. It's going to mature as we go along for sure. Uh, but the planning of the system and the operations of the system will change. And then maybe there's a feedback loop from operations into how it should have been planned and additional things we should have been taking advantage of. So, so all of that, I don't know of any other forum but these kinds of forums that the department has uh, set up to have that dialogue between all stakeholders. So we do have one question um, from the attendees uh, regarding the materials. Uh, um, and whether they will be uh, posted. We will be working on that. Um, but looking at the time, it, we are running low. So I just wanted to thank all the, you know, everyone for, for signing in, for the panelists to, you know, taking the time out of the day to, to provide, um, to provide a great overview of the interconnection and some of the challenges that we see here in the state and uh thank you all attendees for for coming even though this is not in person for for signing on i think it went uh went pretty well for for our uh, first go around for this time thank you so thank you thanks everyone and we'll make sure to get the materials out take care everyone thank you bye thank you